Good thing I have this beard because it's so cold out. My face has never been warmer, so that's been exciting for me. If you have a beard, you know what I mean. So uh, glad you made it this morning. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Um, I can't believe how cold it is. This is just the kind of cold that makes you think about moving to Florida and helps you understand why people do that. Uh, If you're new with us today, my name is Joe. I'm the lead pastor at Spring Valley. It's great to have you with us today. We have been in a series called An Epic Life, and we've been looking at the life of David. And today we're going to get to the moment in David's life that we don't want to get to. David has been doing an awesome job uh, throughout our series. It just seems like he is a model person, and we get to this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it just seems like, David, no, don't do that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about today uh, when David sinned with Bathsheba. And so, uh, just going to be, just so you know, mature audiences today. And want to tell you a quick story. This week we were uh, doing family devotions after dinner. We just read a Bible story, talk about it a little bit. And uh, one particular day we were talking about David. And Cheryl said, uh, to kind of, so my daughter Lucy could hear, she said, Oh, you're talking about David's sin this week, right? And, and I'm like, Yeah, I am. And then Lucy said, Wait, what? His sin is in the Bible? And I'm like, Yeah. She goes, That's rude. She goes, she goes That's rude. And I'm thinking to myself, Well, what do you mean? She goes, That shouldn't be in there for everyone to read. And uh, but that's really kind, and um, Lucy's not really into vulnerability yet. Um, and let's just be real. Uh, I wouldn't want my sin, especially this kind of sin, uh, written for all of humanity to read for the next thousands and thousands of years. How many of us are glad that the Bible is done being written and our failures aren't in there? Yep, amen. Whew. Most enthusiastic you've ever been. That was definitely it. So today I want us to jump right into 2 Samuel chapter 11. want to caution you against something today. Some of you are going to be tempted to say this phrase as we're talking about David. I would never do something like that. And I'm not here to suggest that somehow you are on the verge of adultery or murder. Maybe you are. According to Jesus' definition of adultery and murder, I've committed both. Which is, if you look at a woman lustfully and you've already committed adultery with her in her heart, and if you call your brother a fool or you harbor anger towards someone else, you've already murdered them in your heart. So what I'm going to caution us today is, because I know for some of us, um, we might think that as we read a passage like this, that we start saying things like, well, I'm not going to do that. This must be for somebody else. And just so you know, before we get into it, the point of the story is, if David can fall, anyone can fall. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, this is what it says, in the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So at this point in David's life, he is 50 years old. He's in his 50s. He's been king of Israel for two decades, and David has distinguished himself as an amazing ruler of the people. And so David is a songwriter. Many of the Psalms were written by David. He's a war hero, and he's revered by the people of Israel. And David is a man after God's own heart. This was, it, the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart before he did this, what we're about to read. But David was at that point in his life where I think a lot of us hope to get to. Things were going well. David had money. Fame, success, respect, and power. He was probably tired, too, 
from years of running from Saul, war after war, David had done a lot of living for a man in his mid-50s. His life was stable, and after years of hard work, he decided this was going to be the spring. He stayed home and let Joab and the boys take care of the Ammonites, and we might say David chose to coast. How many of us are dreaming about coasting this morning? Wouldn't it be awesome if all my responsibilities were gone and I could just get to the beach and I could stay in my palace and I can just coast? For some of us, this is our goal in life. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife, underline wife, of Uriah the Hittite. So the Bible doesn't exaggerate about appearances. Um, Bathsheba, we're told, is very beautiful. And that's only a few women in the whole Bible are described as very beautiful. And so David sees her bathing, and he wants to find out more about her, like, who her favorite band is and what she had for dinner that evening. That's not what he wanted. The person David sends to get her, he's no fool, right? I mean, he's a man too. He's standing on the roof with David and he can look down and see the very beautiful woman bathing. So he gently tries to remind David, David, she's someone's daughter. Hey, men looking at pornography, let's just say this this morning, that's someone's daughter. Bathsheba is married. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Isn't it amazing? Like, think about that sentence. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Isn't it amazing? It only takes very few words to describe how David sabotaged his life. A mercifully short description of a self-inflicted wound with extremely painful consequences. The story goes on, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So why are we told that Bathsheba, not to be uh, crass in any way, why were we told that, Dave, or that Bathsheba was going through the process of purifying herself because of her uncleanness? That's talking about a woman's men, uh, menstrual cycle. Bible's a real book, talks about real things. And why we're told this very personal piece of information is because the author wants us to know that the father could only be David because they got together at the exact moment that she was the most fertile. So with Uriah on the battlefield and Bathsheba's belly beginning to swell, I'm pregnant, David. David starts Operation Cover-Up. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Remember, Joab is his commander out on the battlefield. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab said, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. I'm sure that's what he was really interested in. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a Hebrew euphemism for sleep with your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him, verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. 
How frustrating that must be for David, right? Why can't Uriah just go home and sleep with his very beautiful wife? What is wrong with this dude? All it takes is one night for Uriah to go home, and all of this goes away for David. So in his second attempt to get Uriah to go home and spend the night with Bathsheba, David gets Uriah drunk. We're not going to read that part, but David basically tries to get Uriah as tipsy as possible and then kind of send him home. Hey, Uriah, you've had too much to drink. Why don't you go home and see Bathsheba? And Uriah again refuses to go home while Israel is in battle and his brothers in arms are on the battlefield One thing that stands out to me about the story is that Uriah has more character, loyalty, and integrity drunk than David has sober. And it was Uriah's loyalty to David and to Israel that signed his own death warrant. Verse 14. So this is what David does because he can't get Uriah to play along. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. And then the narrator tells us, moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Everyone say died. Died. Heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, these are real people, real soldiers. Uriah's a real man who lost his life because a powerful man was trying to save face. That never happens in 2016. I can understand a man who sees a very beautiful woman bathing and wanting her. I'm willing to admit that. I I understand a man like that. Murdering her husband, David. I have a harder time identifying with that. Not saying I'm not capable of it, just it's a shocking part of the story. So after some back and forth between David and Joab, David hearing that Uriah is dead, Joab reporting what's happening in the battle, this is how this scene ends in David's life, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Personally, the story scares me. Scares me. You can have a proven track record of godly leadership, clean living, and a heart to please the Lord and still sabotage your life with poor choices. So how many of us have ever had this experience before? You're driving along in your car and the lights pop on on your dashboard and you have a warning light come on. Any of us ever had that experience? You're just driving along and you're like, oh, today's a great day. And it's like, no, it's not car problem. You know, and then immediately you start thinking like, oh my goodness, how much is this gonna cost me? Is that check engine light? And we all tell ourselves the same story when the check engine light comes on. I just forgot to close my gas cap. Like we all think that and I'm like, I'm hoping it's just the gas cap because that costs zero and everything else beyond closing my gas cap costs at least 600 bucks. You can't take your car anywhere for less than 600 bucks. And we get these warning 
lights that come on. And even right now, um, I found that I can ignore warning lights when I need to. Like in our van for the last six months, we've gotten fixed and said, but for like the last six months, we had the check engine light on in our car and we just kept driving it and driving it and driving it. We found out it was just a simple O2 sensor. It really wasn't something that was affecting our vehicle too much. So we just drove with the warning light on for a really long time. And this week I was driving and then my oil light came on in my Honda and it says that I am due for an oil change. And I, and I have exceeded the 5,000 miles that I was supposed to have, and I only have 15% of oil life left. And do you know what I'm doing with that light? I'm ignoring it until I can find a convenient time to take my car to get its oil changed. And maybe you have a light on on your dashboard, and you still drove here this morning. Uh, also, it's a real great week for me. My tire light came on that my, my air pressure is low. I still drove here this morning. I was warned, low pressure, low oil. Here I am. And maybe in your car, there's something going on. Here you are. We can ignore most warning lights, can't we? You know the only warning light you can't ignore for a very long time? Your gas light. Can't ignore your gas light. I mean, some of you play that game where you try to drive as long as you can and get it down to as little as possible because you're some sort of, sort of frugal maniac and you like have this, like, this little thing set up where you're like, yes, 401 miles in this gallon. And then as your wife is pushing you to the gas station and you're like, honey, but I got the farthest I've ever got on this tank before. And she's like, you need to repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> warning lights. Some warning lights we can ignore for a while, maybe even a long time. Other warning lights like your gaslight, you'll be broke down if you continue to ignore it. This morning from the story, I want to give you three warning lights that I hope you'll treat like your gaslight, that you are on the verge of an epic failure. Three warning lights of an epic failure, and I think this is for all of us, not just a few of us. Right from the story, number one, first warning light, unrestrained appetites. Unrestrained appetites. Like all life fails, this one didn't happen out of the blue. Crumbling is not an instant act. Your life falling apart never happens overnight. David wasn't passionate about God one minute and committing adultery and murder the next. David's appetite for sex had already overflowed the banks of God's boundaries before this moment with Bathsheba. As David was settling into his home in Jerusalem, after he had conquered Jerusalem, and David said, I'm going to make my home in Jerusalem, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13 says this about David. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. So what did David start doing when he settled in Jerusalem? He started compiling a harem. Concubines weren't even wives. They were just women you would sleep with when your appetite for sex would flare up. And David, the man after God's own heart, who we all revere, starts letting these chinks in his armor kind of go unchecked. God was very clear in Deuteronomy 17 that the king of Israel was not to take for himself wife after wife after wife. Sometimes people say silly things like the Bible's totally okay with polygamy. No, it's not. It just records what people did. And there were a lot of people in Israel who practiced polygamy, and it usually ended very badly. And so David took for himself more concubines and wives. His appetite for sex was unsatisfiable. In fact, the more he fed it, the more hungry he became. 
Some of us believe that if we could just have more of what we really want, we'll be satisfied. We all have to be on guard against overindulging our appetites. Whether it's for sex or money, think about your relationship with money. Think about your appetite for money is never quite satisfied. Some of you are hungry for affirmation. Social media has become a place where you just continue to post pictures of yourself and you let your identity rise and fall on how many likes you get. Because you're so hungry for other people to approve of you and your appetite for significance found in your body or your looks or your appearance just continues to be fed by people saying, I like that and I like that and when they don't like that, you're broke. Because your appetite for affirmation can never be fed. Some of us, our appetite for food is never satisfied. Substances, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, power, Any unrestrained appetite can derail you. You don't have to be a king to experience this. You can be a construction worker, an accountant, a teacher, a pastor. When we fail to bring our appetites and desires under the power of the Spirit in our lives, they can ruin us. All of us have appetites. And some of us aren't being honest about the appetites that we have that we aren't restraining. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So I know this is the exact opposite message that you hear in our culture. But it's normal for followers of Jesus to say no to their feelings, desires, and urges. The presence of God's Spirit in our lives should lead us to say yes to what God wants and no to what we want when what we want is in conflict with what God wants. And when the warning light came on for David that his quest to satisfy his sexual appetite was out of bounds, he ignored it. Where are your appetites out of bounds this morning? What are you ignoring? What are you not being honest about? See, a lot of us, we choose to babysit our sin, and we choose to manage our sin, and we choose to kind of raise our sin like a pet that we just kind of keep in a cage, but we never pull out the shotgun and murder it. We never come into the light with it. We never expose ourselves and say, I'm struggling with this. My appetite for affirmation is outside of God's plan for my life. My appetite for sexual fulfillment is out of bounds. My appetite for food just can never be satisfied, and it's controlling my life. My appetite for alcohol just, I have to keep feeding that. I would encourage you this morning, if you're going to babysit your appetites, and you're going to babysit your pet sins, and you're going to normalize them and make excuses for them, the warning light is blinking this morning, and if you don't pay attention, you're going to have an epic failure. And it won't be a David-sized failure, because none of us have David-sized influence. 
but you'll fail and you'll fall. And you need to bring those things to Jesus. And we'll talk about our need for accountability in just a moment. Here's the second thing, second warning light for David and for us. Number two is spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. In his book, Temptation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes what happens to us when we let our desires take control. He says this, At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. What happened in David's life? He forgot God. The same man who wrote in Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Broke half the commandments in 26 verses. I mean, you can write Psalms and tell the Lord, I desire to do your will. And you could still break the commandments. And you could still do whatever you choose. How did this happen? David forgot God by forgetting the responsibilities of his office. David became passive. When the other kings were off warring, David decided, I deserve a staycation. It's amazing that during, maybe this is your experience, it's been my experience, during the hard times of life, which David had many, we are far more dependent and aggressive in our walk with God than we are when life is easy and comfortable. David knew he needed God to take down Goliath. He knew he needed God to run from Saul. But he got complacent with God once he had settled into the rhythms of a successful life. To get to the place where we are self-reliant and living a life free from problems, pressure, and pain seems to be what a lot of us are after. And prosperity is not a bad thing. But prosperous times make us susceptible to a passive will. See, when life is awesome and everything's under control, and you have money in the bank. And I know a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us, we're younger, and we're, we're just trying to make ends meet, and we're living paycheck to paycheck, and we're working hard, and, and every day's a battle, and we're scraping, and we're clawing, and we're trying to figure life out, and we're trying to move up in our careers and get promotions, and we're, we're not coasting yet. But I think that some of us might be doing all those things so we can get to the point where we can coast. And here's the problem with coasting. That's never God's will for your life. God's will for your life is never to stay home in the spring during wartime. The kingdom of God is a place where there's a war going on between goodness and evil. And God needs every follower of Jesus, whether they are retired and wealthy or young and poor, to be on the battlefield engaged, reaching people for Jesus Christ, not staying home, not waiting for their next big break where they can just coast and stay home and not be bothered by anything. Some of us just think that that's what we're supposed to be chasing. I want to get to the point where I don't report to anybody. I want to get to the point where I don't have to get up and go to work and I'll just laugh at all the people going in the rat race. Do you know where coasting gets you? Bored. Do you know what happens when you're bored and you're idle? Sin. Let's not make it the goal of our lives, Spring Valley Community Church, to retire and coast. Retirement a bad thing? No. 
One thing I love about this church is there have been many people in the life of this church who have showed us this is how you retire. You retire and give more of your life and more of your time to God's work and God's purposes on the earth. You don't give less. Retirement is a time to give more to the Lord, more of your time, not more to the golf course. I love golf, by the way. Not angry at golfers. But let's just be honest. When we want to be bored and we want to coast and we don't want to be bothered with anything that's hard, we easily forget the Lord. We end up like David trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment in fleeting prep. Excuse me. Satisfaction and fulfillment in fleeting pleasures. So the question for you this morning is, are you passionate for the things of God or have you normalized forgetting him? I'm not talking about living on an emotional high. I'm talking about ordinary, daily, growing love for Christ. Is that you this morning? See, some of us come to this place and you're like, okay, Joe, fire me up for another week. Fire yourself up. Seriously. You need to be pursuing Christ Monday through Saturday. And then Sunday evening and after this. This can't be all that you're living on. We can't get to the place where we're forgetting God in our daily life and we just come to church to get blessed and then we go and it's like, all right, hopefully that sermon will carry me. You, this sermon will carry you to lunchtime. Maybe, if it's good. If it's not, it'll carry you until Vinny's done playing and we dismiss. You need to have a passionate relationship with God that's not based on emotion, but that's based on day in, day out, spending time with the Lord. And if you miss a day or a week or a month, get back on the horse. Don't worry about it. So many times we kind of stay away from God because we've missed some time with God and we think he's angry with us. He's a good, good father who loves to be near to his children that he really loves. And some of us are like, well, I don't really have a lot of passion for God right now. Here's what I know about passion for God. Passion follows discipline. Passion does not precede discipline. What I mean by that is, is that you press into the Lord and delight and joy and passion follows. A lot of us are living our Christian life thinking, oh God, just zap me with passion for you and I'll start getting serious. Hey, listen, that's just not how it works. We press into the Lord. We read our scriptures. We pray. We delight in him. We serve. We give. And our hearts begin to be awakened as we discipline ourselves to grow in our walk with God. But what we see here is spiritual amnesia. And if you've forgotten God or you're bored with God or you're just kind of like, all right, another sermon, wrap it up. I just want to go to lunch. Warning light, epic failure around the corner for you. Here's the last warning light. This one I think is really hard to see in the text and yet it's screaming to us as Americans. Absolute autonomy. Absolute autonomy. This warning light is the scariest because it's the most subtle. So I have a little riddle for you this morning. What do we call it when a person is incredibly rich, very powerful, has lots of people serving them, and reports to no one? What do we call that? The American dream. This is it, right? Like this is what, this is, this is what we're selling. This is what we're after. Wealth, autonomy, fame, maybe, but that's not even that important, being famous. We just want to do our own thing. David is living the life so many of us dream of. We tend to equate success with autonomy. I'm able to do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. David is living a life with zero accountability. 
No one can speak into David's life. No one can stop him until we see next week. Even the guy who told David, Bathsheba is Uriah's wife, you know what David said? Get her anyway. Just go get her. Who do you think you're talking to? I don't care whose wife she is or whose daughter she is. Bring her to me. I'm hungry. Check this. Absolute authority with no accountability is a recipe for failure. Absolute authority with no accountability is a recipe for failure. We live in a culture that believes the more power you have, the more autonomy you get. Well, just the opposite should be true. The more power and influence you have, the more accountability you should be living under. One of the mistakes leaders make, pastors make, CEOs make, people who are even just leading their families. Maybe you're just a supervisor of a few people at work. One of the biggest mistakes leaders make, no matter where you're leading, is not inviting accountability into their life because of their position. You want to talk about a warning light. Live your life without anyone being allowed to get in your face and tell you that you're wrong. We never outgrow our need to be challenged and confronted. Some of us run from community. Some of you could even be running from church to church. I'm not sure that this is you. There's 300 people here this morning. I'm not talking to anyone in particular. But some of us run from church to church because we don't want to live under accountability. Because someone offended us because they told us the truth. Maybe that's not your story, but I've heard those stories. Someone confronts you about something in your life and then you just bolt. Oh, I'm not going to put up with this. When did it become normal? Let me just ask you this. When did it become normal for you to be offended and for me to be offended when someone speaks the truth and love to us about an area in our life that we need to grow? See, so many of us just hide behind little, wimpy, weak wills, and we just say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they, I can't believe they said that to me. I can't, believe that, I can't believe someone called me on that. Oh my goodness. How could they do that to me? Hey, listen. When someone calls you on something, listen for the truth in it, even if you don't like what they're saying. See, David becomes king, acts like a king, and he does what so many people do when they have power. They become takers instead of givers. Men need accountability. Women need accountability. And we shouldn't be offended when people who love us tell us the truth. There's not a person in this room, myself included, who is so spiritual that they don't need to give permission to someone to speak into their lives. A lot of us are just living totally free and autonomous, and we don't think we're like David, but we are, because we just want to work our jobs and come home and turn the game on, and we don't want to be bothered, and we don't want anyone to get in our face about anything in our life, and so we isolate ourselves. And we say, tell me I'm awesome or don't tell me anything. So are you accountable? Have you given anyone beside your spouse, because frankly they don't need permission and you've all realized that if you're married. Have you given anyone permission to directly communicate with you about areas where you need to grow? I'm the lead pastor of Spring Valley Community Church. Most of you know that. And one thing that 
I really want our church, even the way that we're structured and that we're governed to reflect, is that yes, I'm the leader here, but I'm a leader not only in authority, I'm a leader under authority. I'm under the authority of the elders of this church, and they, and we talked about it this week in our elders meeting because of this text, have the permission and are invited to speak into my life when they see that I am off. And I told them that privately, and I'm telling them that publicly, and I'm telling you publicly. No church is healthy with a leader who answers to no one. That's not a biblical model of leadership. And it's not a biblical model for any of us who are in leadership, no matter how small we think our leadership is. So I want to close today with this thought. I'm going to invite Vinny to come. So, we've talked about these warning lights, absolute autonomy, spiritual amnesia, unrestrained appetites. Like, if these things are going on in your life, you just need to be aware that you can fall. But we all know that it's election season, right? I'm not going to be political here. I just want to say a couple things. This will get to Jesus, I promise. So, we're getting into this really heated election season Antonin Scalia just passed away yesterday, one of our Supreme Court justices. It seems like the stakes for the election just got even higher. And here's an observation I made. My friends who are more liberal-leaning, and yes, I have friends who are more liberal-leaning, and they really do love the Lord, just for the record. My friends who are more liberal-leaning tend to be really good at picking out where my friends who are more conservative-leaning are totally missing what Jesus Christ is all about. And my friends who are more conservative-leaning are really good at pointing out where liberal candidates and people are really missing what Jesus is all about. And sometimes we just choose these sides. And we begin to kind of believe this very subtle lie that there is a one. There is a king. There is a president who can save us. And let me be very clear this morning. This text is screaming through the millennium to us as followers of Jesus on February 14th, 2016. If David can fall, anyone can fall. If the man after God's own heart can be an adulterer and a murderer, what does that say about our politicians? What does that say about us? What am I going to challenge you to do this election season? Engage in the issues, debate them, vote, go for it. But don't you dare, don't you dare Take your eyes off Jesus. See, because Jesus is the true and the better David. Jesus is the one who comes to us not as a taker, but as a giver. All leaders, all pastors, all politicians were flesh and bone. We could see a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop and find our lives in a big mess. 
But Jesus will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. And Jesus is the true leader that your heart and my heart is longing for. We should be razor sharp in our thinking. We should be very clear about what the scriptures say about every issue, not just the ones we care about. But we should also rise above the fray and let our hearts sing in worship. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and have your way. Come and establish your kingdom. Because all of our leaders, all of our Davids have fallen. And we have fallen. And we just continually disappoint one another. And we need King Jesus to lead us. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said to his disciples, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come to be a taker. He didn't come to abuse his power like David did. But he came to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's who we serve. That's what we're about. The hill I'm dying on is for my king. You die on the hills you want to die on, Spring Valley. But in my life, as for me and my house, we're going to die to see Jesus. We're going to die to proclaim Christ. We're going to die to say, it is Jesus who is the hope of the world. It is Jesus who is the hope of America. And yes, we can pray for who we think is best to elect, but don't you dare put your hope in them. Keep your eyes on Jesus, because he is the one for the joy set before him. You and me endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And he is our king, and our citizenship is in heaven. And your flesh and bone leaders will fail you, but King Jesus will not. And you need to look to him, and you need to surrender to him, and we need to follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, if David can fall, any of us can fall. Keep us from falling. Help us to live for Christ. Help us to put the structures in our life to invite accountability in. Help us not to keep our sin in the dark. Help us to be open and honest with each other. I pray in our small groups this week, we wouldn't play church games. We would be upright and forthright about where we're really at. Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be an excuse to continue sinning, but it would be a, a place to say, I need Christ to transform this area of my life. I'm not going to babysit my sin. I want to put it to death like Paul tells us in Romans. Lord, I pray we'd be the kind of people who are championing the cause of Jesus and the gospel on the earth. Lord God, I pray that as we look to David, we would look past him and we would see you, that you are the king our hearts long for and that we would be a people surrendered to your kingship. That, Jesus, you're not running a democracy. You're running a kingdom. And your subjects you love deeply. And your subjects you came to serve and give your life for. And may we be the kind of people who are living to serve and give our lives so that many can know Christ. Strengthen us with the Spirit 
to be the people of God. And when we fail and we get it wrong, help us to own it quickly and turn back to you. We need you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Go with us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.